Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm so, so pleased to have uh, this wonderful, wonderful guest, uh, Paul, Professor Paul Danzig. Um, Paul Danzig is a director of the executive education in Sacramento for the Soul Price School of Public Policy. He's an adjunct professor as well. Um, he is an executive and leadership coach. Um, he has a PhD in public and international affairs, a master's degree in public administration. Um, he, the Hudson Institute of Coaching, he has a background in that as well, a BA in education, and then he went to Harvard University, uh, the Negotiation Institute. I hope I've covered everything. And I also have to remember, you are a dad, a proud father, and you're a beekeeper too, among other things. So um, I hope I've covered everything, Paul. You have. Thanks, Martin. Great to be here. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, um, and I, you know, Paul, I've always been impressed uh, by you because you've you have a lot, a lot of experience in, in managing and teaching uh, people how to be leaders. And that's why I was so, so happy that you'd, you'd be here today. And I just want to start off by asking you, where were you born and raised? So I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania. That's where the Whiskey Rebellion started, little <laughs> Washington, PA. The first excise tax in the United States, rich in history. And so did you grow up with, um, would you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, middle child, older brother, younger sister, um, pretty nuclear family in that regard. And yeah. And, and, and then, so let me ask you this. So how was your relationship? What was your relationship like with your mother and father and your, and your, you have, do you have a brother and sister or what are your, what are your siblings? Yeah. So brother and sister, um, I think a relationship would be a normal uh, relationship growing up of, um, two-parent income, so, I mean, two-parent, not income, two-parent household, uh, so fairly standard in that regard, a working-class neighborhood, um, spent a lot of time uh, with family, so my mom's side of the family uh, was rather large, she had a lot of aunts and uncles, um, so we grew up in the same town where many of them had lived, and my dad's side of the family was also large, um, he had um, nine brothers and sisters uh, from Wisconsin, so um, our residence was in Pennsylvania, but we spent lots of time in Wisconsin as well. Um, and, you know, my relationship with my brother and sister were close. Um, my brother and I were um, in scouts at the same time. Um, the whole athletic side, we tried to do athletics. Um, he turned out to be much more athletic than I am. Uh, so he continued on with many sports while I bowed out for other activities. Um, and we're always uh, generally working together. Um, whether it was, you know, painting houses in the neighborhood or cutting grass, um, those things would all ring true. Um, and my sister and I would get in trouble. So uh, that's what sisters are supposed to do. Uh, and what kind of trouble did you guys get into? Oh, just normal kid stuff playing around the house and trying not to get yelled at by your parents. You know, those things go. And then um, what was your life? What was your role when you were growing up? What were your role models? And what was your relationship like with your mother and father? So I guess my uh, biggest role model would have been my grandfather. Um, so we grew up two houses down. Um, so, you know, my relationship with my family is pretty tight. Um, but my grandfather I, had the biggest influence on me growing up. Um, he was a shoemaker. Um, my two grandfathers were um, very much in the trade. So my grandfather that lived two doors down, was a shoemaker. My grandfather in Wisconsin was a farmer, um, but it was my grandfather that lived a couple of houses down that I spent a lot of time time with um, growing up, which is running over and, you know, cutting his grass or helping him around the house. Um, he had polio as a child, so one of his legs didn't work. Um, so often it was nice to have someone young running around to grab things around the house or what have you. Um, and uh, spent a lot of time uh, him teaching me how to drive. Uh, so that was uh, kind of nice to be able to get out of the house. I think maybe to uh, my parents' support of getting me out of the house, one less kid to have around um, while I spent time over at his house. Um, and then as, as he got older, um, he had health challenges. So what we, what I now recognize as elder care um, is what I would often do. So in the evenings, go over and make sure that he was getting into his bed and uh, changing his bedpan, et cetera, um, all those things that happen when someone becomes unable to do it for themselves. 
Um, so being able there um, to be able to do it and support him. Um, so, I mean, he was a big influence on my life. I, one of the things I uh, value most about my relationship with my grandfather is he told me a lot about what it means to be human. Um, so there's connection with the community, for example, and um, the connections that he had within our town. Um, at the time, uh, cities in Pennsylvania were split up by neighborhoods. Um, and that was very evident in uh, thinking about how um, connected you were within a certain geographic region. And I suspect a lot of that had to do with just the time and place, right? Of thinking about how easy it is for us to drive across town, for example, but that wasn't always the case with limited access uh, to vehicles, for example, or you know how convenient telephones are now that weren't always as common and people were reliant on walking places. Um, so watching him within the community and the, the relationship he had with other uh, businesses and friends in the same geographic area um, was important for me growing up of learning, you know, what does it mean to be a member of our communities um, and his recognition for his work and many efforts, including having um, a park that he supported that was next to the highway that um, he and the business community took over and cleaned up and called it the Marist Park um, to be able to say, well, here's this little desolate piece of land. Um, what can we do to make it look nice for our community? Um, and spending a lot of time um, making our community look nice and really shaping it to what it is. Um, so he had a big influence on it. Um, my parents uh, taught me a number of different lessons as well. Um, I think my dad instilled in us the, the nature of work and what work means. Uh, we tended to start work uh, very early. Um, I started my first paper route when I was 11. And I think we had a paper route through college where my parents just continued it. Um, so working in the morning and then working after school uh, for my uncle um, in the manufacturing plant. Uh, I shouldn't say manufacturing plant, it was a small business, um, but still working on a drill press all day, getting into that manufacturing space um, and started that when I was about 14 or 15. I forget the exact age. It was pre-driving because my brother had to drive me to work. So I was on the same hours that he was on. Um, so it's that constant of working um, that came into play. Um, and what that has done is not only create that strong work ethic, also how to do a variety of things, which I think is a positive skill to have of, you know, whether it's, you know, fixing the weed whacker that I worked on this weekend because the fuel line was busted or, uh, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how do I take care of a house um, and do things for yourself. Um, you really create that independence coming into play. Uh, but we tended to work a lot. So that certainly came into play growing up. Um, yeah, it, seem, it seems like it seems like to me, um, a lot of the people that we've had on the show, it's just they have a lot of grit. And the fact that your parents were so hardworking and your and your grandfather was, you've kind of like followed in that same, you went the same direction, just a hard, hard worker and just no stop. And when you were a teenager, how were you handling school and work? You're 14 years old, you're, you're working, um, you're doing newspaper. I mean, how, how did you do in school at the time? Yeah, fortunately, uh, we kids were quick studies, which I think was an advantage to us, at least through the high school years, maybe not so much at college, but high school we could squeak through and certainly I was in that case as well. Um, I, uh, my schoolwork probably suffered um, at the expense of you know working and then taking care of my grandfather at times, um, but in other ways it didn't. So you know when you think about high school grades, for example, you soon realize how you can navigate such environments to still be successful within them, um, including maybe an early lesson of being reliant on other experts around you uh, to help you get through. So I can think of, uh, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but at lunchtime we had uh, this small group of ours, you know, when you think about the high school cafeteria, you have your jocks on one side and I don't know if you remember headbangers, Martin, but we had headbangers <laughs> in one area and you know, you just had these different pockets and I was kind of in the pocket of the misfit toys where there's just kind of a bunch of us kind of in the middle of the cafeteria. I um, mean, at lunchtime, I remember a class, it was, it was our AP history class and we had team Xerox where we relied on the smartest kids workbook to then make his answers, our answers. Um, so while it's not the most ethical thing to do, it was a way of maybe surviving of not doing the homework at nighttime when I should have done it, but finding ways to be able to do it in class. Now, I 
passed AP history, but I didn't pass the AP exam, which is a big lesson of, well, there might have been Team Xerox to squeak me through that class. It did help me know more about U.S. history than if I had studied on my own. And what kind of what kind of things did you do as a teenager? What were your some of your like? Did you were you in what kind of what were your hobbies? Yeah, so I think about it more in terms of um, our maybe family unit, and scouting was a big part of my life as well. Um, our scouting troop was maybe one of the more traditional troops uh, where if you wanted to make the rank of Eagle, you had to stay in until you're close to your 18th birthday before they kicked you out. Um, and certainly our scoutmaster was that old school mentality where there's a certain age that came with um, the ranks um, and wanting to make sure that we really knew the ins and outs of not just you know, getting the merit badges and passing what's required for us uh, to get to the next rank, but also have the leader skill, leadership skills in place. Um, that's maybe where my first level leadership came into play of recognizing that there's really some magic on getting people to work together towards a common goal, whatever that common goal may be. And Scouts was a way to help do that. Um, when it comes to sports, I already shared that I'm not the most athletic person, um, but I did get two letters in high school, uh, one for the rifle team and one for the golf team. Uh, the rifle team was my freshman year uh, where uh, my dad and brother are big hunters and um, I tend not to enjoy hunting, but it was part of the expectation growing up that you would go hunting when they went hunting. So I had to learn how to take care of a, a weapon and uh, join the rifle team. I was bullseye once, but that was it. Um, so I think I lettered because our high school was so small. Um, and then my senior year was on the golf team and I knew nothing about playing golf, uh, but my friend said, hey, uh, we really want to have a golf team and we have five people. We need six for a team. We just sign up. You don't have to worry about your golfing skill at all. It'll be the five of us to carry it. We just need another person to put on the scorecard. Uh, so I agreed and um, I was a horrible golfer. At the end, when you're golfing in competitions, the best player always went first, and the worst player always went last. So always on the latter side of it. Um, and by the time I came to the 18th hole, and for me putting in, everyone would be around placing bets on how many times it would take me to put the ball into the hole. So, so, how, so, so how did you, what made you decide to go to college? What was that route like for you, that road for you? Yeah, I think it was um, more of an unassuming expectation um, within the family. So very much working class. My, my dad is, was a mechanic um, at the local factory and my mother was a school teacher. Um, it was just an expectation that we would go to college without them saying that we would go. Um, I ended up going to Penn State largely because that's where my brother went and seeing that as an easy way to transition in of having someone there already established. Um, and trying to find my way on, you know, how do I want to make professional contributions? What does it look like? Um, and figuring it someplace. Did Did you go directly to college, or did you did you go straight? You said you were like there were some issues in high school just because. Um, I don't know what your grades were like, but did you go? Did you apply directly to to university? Yeah, I mean, my grades were really solid. You know, so I downplay, you know, maybe the amount of studying. Um, there were times when you could study and still be able to work your way through. Uh, so my grades were solid and got into University Park campus, which was or is still a big campus and a highly competitive one to get in. Um, so uh, grades were solid enough to get in. GRE scores were solid enough. Um, so I went in for education. So looking at you know, the BS in education. What I realized on the university side, particularly going from a small town to a large university, is that you have to make a decision fairly quickly on whether or not you want to uh, be known on campus and be seen on campus um, and make a name for yourself. At that time, everything was done by a social security number, right? So we always joke that, you know, the university knows you by your social security number. Um, and you had to find a way of saying, you know, either you want to continue to, you know, just focus on studies and, you know, get out with a degree um, or find a way to make different types of um, inroads, contributions, experiences. Um, so my freshman year, I, uh, fell into the student government side of the house. Uh, my roommate 
wanted to join the Supreme Court, which sounds very exciting, um, but it was an overarching body that approved student groups um, on campus. And if there were um, anything that came up in the student groups that needed an outside mediator, it was the Supreme Court that made the decision on um, how to move forward. Um, and there are two positions open and we both applied and both got on. Um, so from that early time, I started in this government line of business of, you know, what is this role of this governing body within the student body? And, you know, what did it do? Um, and continue to just make inroads um, and assume different roles from that side of the house, um, in addition to my studies. And did, Paul, yeah. did you did you live off of campus or were you were you commuting back and forth from your house and were you working? No, I was. Uh, so I was I stayed in the dorms the entire four years. Uh, which I absolutely loved because you didn't have to worry about bills. I mean, it was all paid ones. You didn't have to worry about your meals. Um, I was an RA for one year. Um, so, you know, all those things just played out. Um, and Penn State is about uh, three and a half, I guess about three and a half, four hours away from my hometown. Um, so when I was there, I stayed there the entire time and then came home for breaks. For working, um, it was mainly working outside of the university. So thinking about, you know, school breaks, for example, um, where I'd come home and pick up my newspaper routes that my sister and uh, dad were taking care of and uh, working at my uncle's. Um, so that tended to be the work side of it. But when I was at the university, it was all focused on university life um, and studying, which was maybe a nice break from my high school days. And what did you, were you playing sports or what, who were your kind of role models then? I think the role models uh, fell, I don't know if there was one particular person that I could identify as a role model necessarily. Uh, um, it's more about observing how, um, who we recognized, right, through speaker series. And, you know, there's always events on campuses. And, you know, why is this person coming in to talk about, you know, whatever they might be talking about? And it was interesting to see um, and participate in those sessions, um, even just in the audience of just going and attending and hearing different perspectives coming into the mix. Um, so it's really less about maybe role models and more about understanding of, you know, what makes all of us tick. Um, and maybe more on the human side and how do people find their way uh, within this crazy world that we have. Did, did you know what you were going to do? You chose education as your degree, did you know what you wanted to do at that point in your life? No, in fact, I probably got in too deep with a major. Um, so, you know, once you choose a track, identify the track um, at the time, you're pretty committed to it. And by the time I was smart enough to realize I didn't want to be in an elementary classroom for 30 years, um, it was in some way too late. So I continued with my degree. Um, was maybe a disadvantage is recognizing that there were other variations and options at the time, I'm not thinking about it as a you know, pure elementary school teacher, if that wasn't your route, but looking at administration. And I had no clue what administration was at the time or even what to ask when I was going through uh, my undergraduate classes. Um, in some ways, that's a disadvantage. In other ways, you're learning about you know, what SE teaches us now is uh, being able to connect and make those connections, something that you've excelled throughout your career. Um, that's something that wasn't reinforced at the time um, through my experience. Um, so I miss those types of connections. So by the time I came towards the end of my degree, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's my next step? Um, and I saw a commercial for the Peace Corps um, and I signed up for it without telling my parents and then totally dropped the bomb on them one day at dinner and said, oh, and by the way, I'm going to Namibia with the Peace Corps and I leave, you know, whatever the time frame was, I think I left in November, <clears throat> um, much to their surprise, of course, uh, considering we hadn't been well, we've never been out of the country. Um, so it was. That's that's a great segue for me. You must be reading my mind. So uh, well, really quickly, I wanted to go back to the connections portion. Um, I think when I was an undergrad as well, one of the things that I did not excel in is I was working full time and, and attending university and I did not make those connections. And it was only later in life I realized, you know, I have to make those connections. Can you can you kind of go back on what why that's important? What kind of advice would you give people, especially if they're um, in college, how to make those connections? 
And I think it's just something that we're not necessarily taught, right? Because the focus is so much on, you know, class by class basis and even putting the whole degree together saying, you know, this is where you could potentially go with career paths. I think universities maybe sometimes don't make those connections for students. In part, it's our fault as students because we don't know what to ask, but it's hard to get started. We have even knowing what that looks like, especially when you're coming from a family um, that might have been maybe more similar to mine, where it's more of a working class family um, who knows that their kids need to go to university, uh, but not necessarily know or how to help guide them on making those connections that could expand where they might want to go and might want to do. Um, so, as you, you know, you're thinking about, you know, whether it's undergrad or, you know, graduate school of really maximizing the time of not just seeing it as a way of, you know, getting a certain grading class, but see it as a way to build up relationships. And what I now know is that, you know, being a student is a good in to talk to many different types of people of, you know, doing that cold call and saying, hey, I'm a student in X, uh, in X program, you know, can we, can we meet and just like to learn more about you know, how you came to where you are? And people are generally willing to open their door to be able to do that. Um, I, I, the first lesson I remember of that happening to me was during that transition between getting my degree at Penn State and going into Peace Corps, I had this big window um, that I needed to fill. Um, and it was a time where my grandfather had passed, right? So it didn't have that same type of connection at home of uh, mm -hmm. taking care of him. Um, and, you know, the work with my uncle um, was just in a different place. His business grew where he had a different type of uh, full-time employees coming in as opposed to relying on us kids to help with some of the manufacturing pieces, right? So all those things were just kind of there if I wanted to go back to it. Um, but it was also an opportunity to do something different. Um, so I applied for an internship at the uh, California, I mean, not California, Pennsylvania Department of Education. I'll see how California just totally ingrains your thinking. Uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania Department of Education and I received an internship um, that was, you know, a low level internship, you know, one step up for making photocopies, you know, and that's the time when they actually made photocopies and everything was printed out, et cetera. Um, but I remember uh, studying up on the department and I lived in Harrisburg. I found a room to rent um, in a part of town that my mother probably wouldn't approve of. She knew I was living there, uh, but it's what I could afford. Um, and it was walking distance to the office. Um, anyways, I walked back and forth to the office and I started to learn, you know, who are the, who are the big players within the Department of Education? Um, and one of them was the secretary at the time, Secretary Hickok. Um, and I remember, you know, doing some sleuthing about, you know, who is he? You know, the internet, internet was kind of weak at that point, right? It was around, but it wasn't as um, easy to access as it is now. Uh, but you see, you know, there's a picture in the hallway, right? So you're able to say, oh yeah, when I mean, you come into the building, typical government building, you see all the leaders in their pictures, you know, standing in front of American flag and, you know, their suit and tie. Anyways, I recognized him and started to find out, you know, when he was going to events to speak in public. I wanted to learn, you know, what was that side of the house like? What did that look like to be a secretary? Um, and one day I ran into him in the hallway and I said hi to him. Um, and he said, who are you? And, you know, what are you doing? And I told him, you know, where I was an intern. He said, well, won't you come to my office tomorrow morning for coffee? I was like, oh, great. You know, so I went home that night. And I was super excited. I called my parents. I told them that you know, I was going to go have coffee with the secretary and, uh, you know, just coming from, you know, a small town and, you know, being able to talk to the secretary, that's a big deal. Um, and I remember going in there and uh, he had a great big office and, you know, one side of his office was where this great big mahogany desk was. And the other half of his office was bigger than our living room at home with all this, all these big couches and chairs. Um, and we sat down at the couch and, you know, pointed to where I was to sit. So I sat down um, and they asked if I would like a cup of coffee. And I said, no, thanks because I didn't drink coffee. Uh, and I <laughs> turned around from that experience thinking, you know, how rude that would be now um, to turn it down. Um, and, you know, even knowing those little things of, you know, here I had this meeting with the secretary. I had no clue what to ask him. Um, I turned down his offer of a coffee, you know, and it was a very nice conversation. And he asked, you know, things I might be interested in doing. And I had no clue, you know, outside of this little internship that I had. So I didn't even know what question to ask. And I fall back on that experience of realizing, one, 
how um, how I wasn't skilled to be in that type of environment. Um, but I was skilled enough to be able to recognize who are the players um, to be able to get in front of. But I didn't have a clue of what to do when I had those few minutes with him. Um, and you know, since learned, you know, when you have a few minutes, you know, how do you maximize that time to be able to be with them and not maybe in a prodding or nosy way, but one that instills this idea of professional growth. Um, and how do you do it from a position of learning? Um, and I failed miserably meeting with the secretary and I wish I was better at it. He then went on to, you know, the feds of working in the um, Bush administration. You know, and that was a time when, you know, Tom Ridge was a big name too. And um, I would see Governor Ridge running with his uh, security detail along the, the river uh, right in front of the governor's mansion and say hi to him. And just remember how accessible, you know, those those leaders were, um, which maybe is different than what we're experiencing today where um, the accessibility is, might be a little bit more, uh, a little bit different than what it was at the time. Um, but seeing youth as an advantage, um, and internships as a manage, I simply didn't see it. I saw it as a stopgap between, you know, getting my degree and heading out to the Peace Corps. And that that that's great advice because it's, um, you know, making sure that you just go out there and get internships and make those connections. I mean, I, I love that story. And let me. So I want to get into your Peace Corps as well. How did how did the death of your grandfather affect you? Um, I, you know, it's um. It's interesting. So, you know, growing up, you know, death was always around us. So I'm not saying it in a necessarily a morbid way. Um, we are very active in our church um, and active for us in a Catholic church when you're small um, and male means that you're an altar boy. Um, and certainly my brother and I were altar boys for, um, well, I'm not sure when it times out, but from as early as you could be an altar boy to the time they kick you out of being an altar boy. Um, and you learn a lot of being within that space um, you learn a lot about religion. You learn a lot about rituals. Um, and it, uh, because we're so active, um, I think it's defaulted to different experiences that others might not have um, been part of. And one of those was uh, finding servers um, during funerals. Um, and uh, my mom was the, um, I don't know, I guess the president of the Christian Mothers. I forget the hierarchy and titles. Um, so there's always older members who would die, right? So these Christian mothers would die and then they would look for servers to serve at their funeral mass. Um, and generally it was us by, I don't know, by default or we were just born told to be able to do it. Um, so while, you know, other servers were serving at weddings and getting a big fat check afterwards uh, from the wedding party, uh, we would be on the funeral side of the house. Um, so, you, you know, you learn a lot about how people celebrate life and death. Um, and, you know, part of it was also, you know, going to the funeral home and understanding what that experience was like, um, which is very different than the rituals that are done in my community now. Um, it's just a very different experience of recognizing what death is and how families gather um, or not gather. Um, so, you know, that was around. Um, so, you know, being able to recognize, you know, that transition, um, I mean, it's sad for sure and being such a big part of my life. Um, and it's also recognizing that, you know, how do you celebrate the good of what the experiences have been and not necessarily dwell on what could be. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very much in the presence, right? And, and then um, you you went to, you end up going to the Peace Corps, which I know is a very, very difficult process to, to, to be accepted. And you went off to Namibia. And so what was your experience like that over there? I mean, it was very different. So, you know, the two places that largely been before that was, you know, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, and Wisconsin, where we'd spend our summer vacations, Martin, working, uh, because we took working vacations while, you know, my cousins and the friends, you know, they went to the beach or someplace else. We went to the farm to go bale hay, um, because that's what you did. Um, so, you know, seeing those two types of experience and then going to a, one, just a totally foreign country, and two, being in Southern Africa, you know, during the time of a major transition, that being, you know, going from an apartheid state to a democratic state, um, or just a lot of transitions all at the same time. Um, I remember uh, 
before you get to the country, you have what's called a pre-service and it starts in Washington, DC. And that's where you do all your paperwork and get all your shots and tell you which medicines you have to take. And you know, all those things are going into a developing world that just need to be proactive about when you're going for a long period of time. Um, and to start getting you acclimated to what you could expect when you're on ground and what the people are like in the, in this case, the different tribes and the history of Namibia, et cetera. Um, and we're in a large group. I mean, there's 40 of us, 42 of us maybe, um, that was split between elementary ed, which was my side of the house and secondary ed. Um, but you start, you know, forming a lot of bonds and people generally about your same age. Um, actually, it's, most were about, you know, our, my same age at the time, which, you know, just coming out undergrad, you know, plus or minus, not plus or minus, plus maybe three to five years uh, would be one group. Um, and then there was a group of senior citizens that you know, retired and then just wanted to join the Peace Corps and get back and saw it during, you know, the Kennedy era of you know, how important that was and the establishment of the Peace Corps, right? So two different maybe motivating factors on why to join the Peace Corps. Um, but I remember going, you know, you formed these type bonds, so it became, you know, very close. Um, and not scary that way because you already have these relationships established. Um, and then, you know, flying there and realizing, you know, how long does it take to fly? And uh, it was the second time I was on a plane and you know, we went from DC to New York. I'm like, oh man, they have telephones in here. And I picked it up and ran my credit card through and called my mom. I'm like, guess where I am? Like I'm on the airplane. And she's like, why are you calling from the airplane? Right. So it's just kind of fun, you know, new experience. Um, and getting there, it took, you know, all day, two days, two days, I think, three days. It took a long time to get there. And, you know, landing in country, going from this lush green Pennsylvania to an arid savanna uh, was a big shock. Um, and, you know, driving between, you know, the airport and the capital city of Vintok, uh, which had at the time, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand people or couple hundred thousand. I mean, it's certainly bigger than my hometown, um, but still just tiny, just a dot on the map coming from DC. And uh, seeing all the barbed wire, right, and fences and security guards walking around with AK-47s and just how different that experience was than from where I just left from um, and seeing that as part of the experience. In addition to, you know, the monkeys on the side of the road, you know, just chasing the vehicles as they're going down the highway and uh, driving on the opposite side of the road, you know, all those things certainly came into play. Um, we were in the capital city for a short time. Then we went to the training city where I was, um, the half that was on the elementary ed side stayed with host families. Um, the secondary side stayed more in a dormitory. Um, so I was with a host family. Um, and I, host family took me in as their own. I mean, it was um, actually a lot of fun. It was maybe one of the more active host families. Um, they dragged me everywhere. So there was, you know, someone who died and there was a wedding and there was a confirmation um, at church and I had to read all their names, which or maybe that's another story <laughs> experience. Um, you know, for them, it was, you know, here's a white person coming in and just the symbolize, symbolism between, you know, having a white person live with them uh, was a huge deal and something that maybe we would um, take for granted and maybe less spend less time thinking about. Um, but for them, it was huge. Um, so being able to go to each one of those rituals and, you know, there were long rituals like the, um, the wedding was a seven day wedding. The funeral was about the equal amount, right? Cause they had to wait for family to come in and, you know, just the way you think about you know, how do you celebrate life? And you know, the funeral, I remember, you know, they had to at someone's house and they didn't preserve the body and the body was in a casket, right? In seven days, you can imagine that's like in the desert. Um, so we're pay your respects inside and then go outside. And um, almost everything was done outside. The inside was thinking about, you know, different types of structures that they have and what they would see as being modern. And um, it's just very different ways. Right? You go from this very tribal community that they're used to, you know, mud huts, which with dung on the outside and thatched roofs, um, which made a lot of sense for such an arid climate to wind to be modern and creating cinder block houses with tin roofs. Well, you can imagine what the cinder block house, which maybe is the size of um, your living room or you know not a very big space, um, 
but you know, a tin roof and cinder block walls in the summertime when it's you know 110 outside uh, turns into an oven, right? And it's anyways, it's what they see is having money and right because you're able to afford such maybe luxuries, um, which is just counterintuitive in many ways. Uh, but I mean, we're sitting outside, right? And the men would all sit in one area and the women would all be in another area. And, you know, being the guests of honor, um, they would serve me first and, you know, come to me first. And um, it came time for dinner time and they had cooked a, a goat, which was very traditional to, to cook goats at such celebrations. And they brought the goat in a big bowl he told me which piece to take and it was the prize piece um but martin it was the fattiest piece of goat um and i had a hard time chewing it and i felt bad because i wanted to spit it out not because of the taste but because i can't stand fatty meat um and it was just really really tough um but i had to eat it because that fat was the best piece of the goat so when you're thinking about living in a in the very indigenous lifestyle, there's not a lot of opportunities to have fat in your diet, right? It's for them, it was meat, like that's meat or um, this, what we consider maybe like a cornmeal type equivalent, but with local crops um, called Oshifema. Um, so it was that all the, that all the time and even less on the meat because the meat was more um, something special when you would have meat. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just that fatty piece and you know everyone was eyeing it and here i was eating it i wanted to spit it out and recognizing that you couldn't do that and that's sort of, when you get into those cultural norms of you know what is what does this environment tell me right now about how i should be acting in a culturally appropriate way um, and how do you recognize to still be true for yourself um, so we had you know a lot of volunteers i shared that story um, and a lot of the volunteers automatically became vegetarians, uh, <laughs> even though they eat meat, um, but they could write it off saying I'm a vegetarian and turn it down politely, um, which I wasn't smart enough to think about at the beginning. Uh, so, so let me ask you this. So when you finished your time in the Peace Corps and you went on and you pursued your master's and then your PhD, what got you in the leadership space? I think it's tying it in with um, those experiences as they start to unfold for you. So when I came back from the Peace Corps, I was looking at, you know, what I want to do next. And I was applying for jobs um, within government settings and master's programs at the same time. Um, and the jobs front was pretty tight at the time. The market was pretty saturated. Um, and uh, the master's program at USC uh, was the best option at the time. Um, so I flew out to Sacramento for the MPA. Um, and from there, you know, it led into your line of questions earlier about people that have some influence about, you know, where you are and who shapes you. Um, and had the great fortune of working with Chester Newland, who's a leader within, you know, the PA field. Like everyone knows Chet Newland when it comes to public administration. Um, and being able to work at an office right next to him um, was pivotal, pivotal in my career in recognizing that, you know, this work that we do. Um, yes, it's noble work um, and it's hard work. Um, and there's different ways of making contribution within this space um, and seeing the different avenues um, by having a PA degree of recognizing that, you know, the, there's a certain focus on outcomes. Um, and we also need to be mindful and astute to the relationships involved. Um, and that's really shaped the way that I think about leadership within a space of recognizing that those two things have to converge. Um, in order for great work to take place. Um, so certainly he was a, a big influence and continues to be a big influence on my life um, when it comes to my professional career. Um, and that led into other things of, you know, getting my master's and then him encouraging me to go on for my doctorate and saying, you should really get your PhD now um, and see that as an opportunity and went to the University of Pittsburgh and then uh, back to USC um, after they went through a major reorg. Um, to be able to help them through the transition and haven't left uh, having so, too much fun in the work that we're doing. So now you, you know, you've co you coach um, and you provide classes for executives from, you know, cities, counties, states, uh, nonprofit organizations. What is the most common difficulty coaching or training uh, many people that are already established leaders? I, 
Um, when I, I mean, it's a really good question, Martin. And this is where you're starting to get on the, the geeky side of my work. You know, it's one of the things of being able to recognize what leadership is and, you know, what does it mean within our space of recognizing, you know, public service needs to have a different type of approach because our mission is different than private industry um, and arguably nonprofits as well. I mean, there's some similarities to both those, but public administration has um, a specific reason to be in existence. Um, it has to follow different guidelines that other organizations don't necessarily follow um, or have to follow, right? Because it's a, a different starting point and why they're established and the role they have in our society. So when you're asking questions around, you know, this, what I see within the, the leadership space um, and maybe some where some of the challenges start to emerge, um, it's identifying, you know, what leadership is and, you know, first making a distinction between what we see is leadership and management, right? And, you know, literature between understanding leadership and management has really evolved, right? And some, when it first started out, the management was leadership and then Venice came around and separated the two and said, well, no, there's a hard distinction if we're thinking about it through certain lenses. Um, so there's a time when it was very much split between the two. Now it's starting to maybe morph together again on, you know, using leadership and management maybe in common ways, um, yet having very, very much distinctions across the two. And where I see leaders um, often running into challenges is when they're getting into a space of um, looking at the idea of relationships and outcomes. And that's where I tend to focus, you know, my work and giving presentation, you know, this, this interplay between the two of them. And it, when I think about um, leaders um, that fall maybe more on the outcome side where all their efforts are all about getting the job done at any cost, um, that has a huge strain on relationships. And we can recognize that within you know, public service, there's probably some people that you're thinking about right now that, you know, are always outcome focused all the time and recognize that there's a role for that type of leadership, right? That it can be very effective, particularly in getting short time wins and short time gains. I um, mean, and it creates this awake behind them of um, people that um, are strained in a different way and they're strained on the relationship side of the house. Uh, so certainly that would be a way that, that leaders get stuck at times if they're focused too much on the outcomes. Um, the same is also true if they're too focused on the relationships. So you can think about leaders that uh, you might be attracted to because they're really cool and charismatic. Um, there's just something about them that you know makes them tick. If the leader is too focused on the relationship side of the house, you know, there's a cost to that as well, right? The cost is you know getting things done. And you know, the trap that you fall into is either not getting things done or letting those that are around you, those that you're leading to create their own narrative, um, right? Where it's, you're not leading them towards certain outcomes, right? You're, you're being attracted because of your name. Um, and that's, you know, that's also a trap where, where we tend to see the strongest leaders are those that, you know, understand both the outcomes and relationships are needed. And how do you go about placing a high value on both those at the same time? For most of us, that doesn't, come to us easily. So generally we tend to be stronger more on one side than the other. In some ways that shapes, you know, our profession on, you know, where we go to make our career, you know, my brother, you know, as an engineer, he tends to be very much on that outcome side, uh, but he's not a traditional engineer because he's figured out the relationship side of the house. And because of that, he's doing, you know, he started out in engineering and he's still an engineer and he's kind of that in between the executives and his team um, because he understands both sides and recognizes that both are needed, right? He has that skill set. Uh, so you have to figure out how to do both those. And, you know, it's a recognition that we're going we're gonna to falter at times of, you know, not getting that formula exactly right, uh, but it's something that we should be striving towards. So where I see the strongest leaders of maybe not necessarily having that, but striving towards that understanding of how do I expand it out? And, you know, there's a ton of public service leaders that we can identify that fall in one camp or the other. You know, I can think of, you know, this one person that I'm hearing about from the state and uh, connection with them, um, not directly through another party and, and um, working with them and hearing, you know, from their perspective, all the things that are happening within that department and saying, you know what, that's outcome focused, right? So 
that leader is very much focused on, you know, getting the job done and saying, you know, how do we fall back to those old management principles that still haunt us? Um, I say haunt us because we're so maybe hyper-focused at times on the three E's, right? The efficiency, effectiveness, and economy of the work that we do at the expense of other E's that might be as equally important, like empowerment and equity and ethics of so saying, you know, those are important too. Um, so, you know, how do we recognize that all those things are needed um, within public service leadership and how do we strive towards, you know, doing our best within those environments? And part of it falls back to maybe some of those earlier life lessons. So maybe Martin, that's why you're teeing me up on you know, all those questions about growing up, on getting into that space on saying, you know, I'm not going to be an expert at all, but I do know experts who can help guide me in the process, right? There's people that I need to surround myself with who are experts in the work that they're doing to be able to rely on. Um, and how do I build up our trusting relationship that, you know, sometimes I'm going to say the wrong thing, but sometimes I'm going to do the wrong thing. How do I have people around me that are guiding me in the process saying, uh, you need to go a little bit more right. You need to go a little bit more left along the way. And we can only do that if we're surrounding ourselves with people that we trust. Um, they're also going to guide us along the way um, that become our superiors, right? Even if they're at different levels within the organization, you know, our superiors don't have to be people above me in the pay grade. Um, superiors are, you know, the intern that we just had, and she transitioned to a full-time job. But when she was here, she's like, hey, we need to think about incorporating more of the technology pieces in. And I'm like, Google Documents and Google Sheets? Like, I've never done a budget on Google Sheets. Why would I do that? Because can't everyone access it? And won't they see the budget numbers? And they're like, yeah, exactly. So we can all work on it together. I'm like, oh, man. Right? It's just you have to get into a different time, into a different frame of mind saying, you know, all those things are important. And had I had not had my superior say, hey, we need to expand into this type of space, I would have never done it. Um, and it's those types of things that help us become stronger overall. Um, and, you know, are you at a place that you're willing to allow that to happen? Yeah, I, I absolutely love what you said. I mean, I could just bottle what you said the last six or seven minutes about balancing outcome and, and developing relationships because like you said so many leaders what they do is they focus on one thing or the other and then but i think that the the more equitable and the best leaders manage both and i i love how you just making sure that you stay open to what other people's input is interns and whoever it is to to, to develop as a good leader what would you suggest people do if you uh, if you're a subordinate and you don't necessarily like the leadership, um, how do you operate in that space and still try to stay motivated when maybe you don't agree with your leadership? Yeah, I think that's a really mean question that you're asking of you know, getting into that space of what if you don't like your boss, but you don't want to say it. <laughs> you know, it's getting into the space around influence on, you know, how do you create influence? And when we get into, you know, organizational dynamics, there's always a power undertone, right? And power generally comes from three different areas. It comes from your position within the organization of, you know, just think about that hierarchy. We all have organizations that have hierarchy. And even in flat organizations, there's a hierarchy. So you get power from, you know, that type of positional, um, you get power from relationships. So, you know, recognizing, you know, who do you know and who's being brought into the conversation. And we can think about power in terms of, you know, our personal expertise, so. I can think about, you know, that that smart kid in high school that we used to take his, you know, workbook and copy the pages. Um, he was um, very much a genius on that side. But had I not had a relationship with him, that would have never happened, right? So thinking about those power dynamics um, coming into play. So when we think about power in those three terms, one is putting some sort of understanding to our environments and saying, when I see a power dynamic happening right now, where's the power coming from? What does it look like? And what's the organization value? And it's, you know, our role in many ways to say, you know, I might not have the positional power. I might not have the relational power. I might not have the expertise, um, but I can have influence within this environment. Um, but what does influence look like? And it's a recognition of sometimes, you know, that influence takes a long time for it to be able to materialize into something constructive. And, you know, the challenge for us is saying, you know, how long do you want to to be part of that organization if you're not getting what you need from that organization. You know, in public service, 
you know, one survival technique is to bounce around to different areas of saying, you know, this environment isn't working out for me because of X, Y, and Z. And sometimes it's, you know, who might be in charge that has that power. Sometimes it's maybe just the culture of the, that organization um, and to be able to move and shift. I mean, other times it's saying, you know, what can I learn from this experience right now? And how can I build the relationship side so I can have influence in the environment? You know, it could be that you never have influence within the environment, right? So those are things to be able to watch out for saying, you know, how do I do my best from where I am? Um, and again, it comes back to, for me, the relationship side of the house of being able to bounce ideas off of, you know, whether it's a mentor within the environment saying, this is the challenge I'm facing based on this dynamic and recognizing that um, others have either experienced it or going through it at the same time or getting into that space of saying, you know, how do I transition maybe in a different way uh, by having experts coming in from the outside? Maybe this is where the coaching space comes into play of being able to balance ideas off of being able to test new ideas in an environment that's trusting um, where I can be vulnerable within that space um, and still be able to grow and learn of recognizing that we all get stuck sometimes. And, you know, how do we get unstuck? Um, and there's different ways of being able to do it. And then what kind of... Um... What kind of what kind of excuse me about the, my dog back here? So, what kind of resources would you recommend people um, look into? Any books or, or taking classes to help develop that side? Yeah, I mean, there's generally a lot of resources out there. I think part of it is just asking, you know, where they might be. So we can think about things like a 360 assessment, for example, when uh, we created Leadership Energizes a number of years ago. Uh, what's going on? well, from the prototype, maybe nine years, eight years ago. Um, so think about tools and resources from the individual side of saying, you know, I can take a self-assessment and that would provide some sort of understanding of just how I show up and getting into that space on, you know, how does that relate to my environment and what are those things I can pull out? So very much in that reflective space. Um, so that would be more in the internal reflection sphere, right? Of I'm just processing it in my head, I'm processing it, you know, with a note of one, you know, I'm trying to figure it out for myself. Um, we can also think about reflection from an external way of doing it. So instead of internal of me thinking about it, external, how do I get your feedback, Martin, to be able to shape where I am? I mean, often a 360 can be helpful in that regard. Um, we're getting feedback from observers, you know, supervisors, peers, direct reports, um, indirect reports. Um, certainly that would come into play. Um, and then resources on, you know, checking out you know, different books or allowing yourself to attend um, different sessions. You know, sometimes the sessions are things you know a lot about, like USC just had a coaching conference and you know, I'm in this coaching space. So I attended. And, you know, one of the first questions that I started off with was how many of you had coaching experience? And there was 130 of us in the room and half came back saying they had coaching experience of working with a coach and half did not, which tells me that half that did not said, you know, I want to learn more about what coaching is. I mean, how to you know, use this stuff to um, my advantage within the workplace environment. So not advantage of trying to take advantage, but to help grow as an individual. Um, so things like that certainly come up within our organizational settings and are we taking advantage of what might be out there? Um, and certainly training programs come into play as well. Well, now I get to give you some nice rapid fire questions. <laughs> so, um, so who, Who's a leader or someone that you'd like to meet in your life that you haven't? And what would you say to them? Oh, my gosh. Um, so I was watching other podcasts, Martin. I saw you end with uh, these types of rapid fire. So I came prepared um, because I need to think about these things. And um, the first person that came to mind was Dolly Parton. Now, you might be saying, you know, why Dolly? Besides having, you know, some great country music um, from the old school side. Um, if you listen to her ballads, uh, they're really powerful in the way that she makes you think about um, the environment, what it means to be human. Um, and being able to you know, watch her from a lot of different levels of, yes, yeah, she's a, a great on stage and you know, people are very attracted to um, her music and how she performs. Uh, and there's a big uh, giving back component to her work. Um, so we live in a rural community and thinking about some programs that benefit rural communities like her library that she has where she sends books once a month to uh, kids that are under five as part of her mission, right, without cost. I'm thinking about, you know, how do you give back and recognizing that people have different starting points, uh, but just because you start out 
in a certain path doesn't mean you have to stay on that path. Um, so how do you expand and grow? So what um, would so you that, ask, so what would you ask her, Paul? Yeah, here's your so question. Like, talking about Dolly and talking about the questions that you would ask her. Uh, you would ask, yeah, you get to ask her this question. Yeah, I, I think this is where I get into like the the Secretary Hickok uh, type of moment where uh, first I would accept a cup of coffee if she offered one to me. <laughs> uh, but then you know having a conversation, I think the conversation would be you know more in that space on uh, you know how to, how should I be thinking about you know, her uh, legacy and, and how her career um, has gone in different directions. What is it um, that would help me think about where my career is headed? Of recognizing we're in totally different industries, but we're still within this large human side. So Martin, that's my way of avoiding the question. I'm not sure what I would ask her. Um, I don't know what I would ask her. I think it'd be more conversational. And then um, what do you want to be remembered? What do you want to be remembered for? Yeah, I'm too young to get into that question, Martin. Um, <laughs> That's why I asked the question, because it's a difficult one. Yeah, it's a really mean one. I, I think what I want to be known for, Martin, is that on today, February 15th, from 10 to 11 o'clock, um, I was fully present with one of the coolest people that I know, uh, Martin Figueroa. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer, I guess. <laughs> I don't know about the coolest. Best thing about being a dad? Uh, best thing about being a dad is... Uh, Every day is different. And what is left on your bucket list? Oh, man. That's assuming that I have a bucket list. You know, I've never had a bucket list. I, I think part of it, you know, ties back where I, I live in today. And, you know, I can think about, you know, things that I might want to do um, in the future. Uh, but I tend to be just where I am today. So, you know, things that are on my immediate bucket list are, uh, I live on a couple of acres and I need to clear out some shrubs and get ready for, you know, the wildfire season that's going to come sooner rather than later. So this weekend, if you're free, come over and help me cut up some firewood. And then here's the last question. How did you become a beekeeper? Oh, man. Aren't bees amazing? They're so cool. Um, I've always have been in love with insects uh, from my... Uh, from my youngest days, I remember um, having a bug collection and I kind of hid it from my father. And I'm not sure why my mom knew about it, uh, but we had this shoe box and I would pin up insects and stick them underneath my bed um, and just study them on how cool they are and how different they are and how they have some similarities um, and some differences. Um, and when we moved out into a rural area, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get some bees and see what that whole bee thing's about. Um, and I've loved them. Um, I currently don't have a hive, though, because there's so much science behind it. Wax moths attacked it because it was too dry and I wasn't feeding them. And I didn't realize I need to feed them during certain times. Anyways, the bees are currently uh, extinct at the Danchak household, um, but I can't wait to get them again. Well, let me add this is a lot, the final thing I want to say. Thank you so much, for Paul, for being here. You've given me so much knowledge and I this one of the reasons why I wanted to have you um, here is because I look up to you. You're a super, super bright person. You gave good tidbits about leadership and how to improve. And how can people get in contact with you or take classes with you? What's the best way to get in contact with you? I think the easiest way is through uh, my USC email address, which is uh, uh, my last name, D-A-N-C-Z-Y-K at uh, usc.edu, which by the way, Martin, if you play Scrabble, it's 28 points. So feel free to use it. And if you use all your letters, it's a 50 point bonus. Uh, so it's all those random letters coming up. Uh, that might be the easiest or my uh, Gmail account, uh, which is pauldanchek at Gmail. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I would like to thank my producer, Brian Garcia, for producing the podcast every week. And uh, yeah, if you like the podcast, please give reviews on all the major uh, platforms, uh, Spotify, Apple, so forth. Um, and thank you so much for being here. And uh, we'll be catching you next week with another wonderful guest. And thank you so much, Paul. And have a wonderful week, everybody. Thanks, Martin. It's been a pleasure.